house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Jonathan is traveling halfway around the world. You my translator? Forgive my speaking of English, Jonathan. As I'm not so premium with him to search for the woman who saved his grandfather in World War II. It's my grandfather, Saffron. And this is Augustina? This is our driver. <laughs> Please, do not be distressed. This is only driver seeing eye, bitch. Wait, he's blind? Only he thinks this. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Puzz podcast, the only podcast hiding our secrets in a diorama of New York City. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my seeing eye bitch, Joe Reed. <laughs> you asshole. <laughs> uh, hello, I am very... Uh... Uh, spectacular to talk to you today. Um, uh, I like I'm the one who usually does that. Hello, voice. Hello. Um, I'm mostly doing Zoya the Destroyer from Glow. <laughs> when I do that, I'm mostly just being <laughs> Alison Brie at that moment, so that's fine. Um, had uh, I had you either seen this movie or read this book before? Uh, uh, I read the book. You did Never read got the to book. See the movie because oh, I'm fascinated to talk so to you quickly. About that. I mean, like this is also right when I started college when the movie was released. So, uh, getting to a theater was uh, difficult in the immediate fall of 2005. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah. And I think that this left pretty quickly because I wasn't in a major city for college. Yeah, um, I'd read I remember the book, being though. like uh, anticipating this movie, and I think same with you where. All, yeah. before, by the time I even, you know, was uh, was aware, it was already there and gone. And then I just never watched it on DVD for some odd reason. If you had stepped into any type of establishment in the years from 2002 to 2005, any type of establishment that sold any type of books, mm-hmm. you were familiar with the title, Everything is Illuminated. This book was kind of fucking everywhere. I remember right. EW hyping it quite a bit. Um, yes. So, like, the book is a huge reason why this is already a prestige title. The movie, which got very, very milk toast reviews, like, immediately and then came out. And, of course, that's how it gets forgotten. Mm-hmm. The movie played three of the major fall festivals. World's premieres at Telluride, then goes to Venice, then goes to... Yeah, there were some um, expectations here, for sure. The, the rarity of when that used to have that, you know, they would do Telluride. And then right. it's not Venice and then Telluride. Right. Um, so what was it? Was t- Telluride bump their festival a few days later or did Venice bump theirs a few days earlier? I think it was probably just late in Venice. Mm, sure, 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 sure. I see. And, you know, those festival reviews were not strong. Right. Um, And, like, this is a first time feature. It's from interesting an actor. reading those reviews, though. A lot of them, I tried to read as many of them as I could. And. 
there were a lot, they all came from, I feel like, very distinct places. There were some people who really liked the book and thought the movie didn't do it justice. There were some people who really didn't like the book and thought the movie maybe did a little better, but were still just annoyed enough with the whole thing to just want to wash their hands of it. There were people like, I think Ebert's review was positive, and I don't think he had read the book. Um and so there was just a lot of angles to the reception for mm-hmm. this movie in terms of like what people were bringing to, I think already, and I, we're definitely going to talk a little bit about Jonathan Safran Foer as a literary personality and what that brings to the table. Because I think while a lot of it sort of happened and evolved after both the book and the movie version of Everything is Illuminated, I think in terms of this movie's legacy, I think his sort of standing as a novelist and a writer and, like I said, a literary personality um, is is significant. I also want to say, and listeners, you're not going to know the majesty of this, but like the way that Chris right now is aligned in the frame where he has a shelf above him, he has a headband around his head that comes to a top a little bow, but where you were aligned a second ago, the things that are on the shelf above you look like they are springing forth from your headband. So you almost look like a Carmen Miranda kind of a figure <laughs> with like just a big, uh, you know, uh, headdress on. It was kind of amazing. Inside baseball apartment living, I record from my closet. That yes. is my shelf of clothes. Yes. Uh, precariously not falling on my head, but any day now. <laughs> I just wanted um, to pick, point that out, though, because it was giving me um, a lot of joy. Like, where is he going with this? And it's just full <laughs> non sequitur into it is. I'm sorry. Uh, what I'm wearing. Uh, Should we maybe start with the Jonathan Safran Foer of it all before we even begin with the plot of the movie, though? Because maybe yeah. that's, like, important. I, I mean, like... Spoiler alert, we are recording this episode the week uh the weekend of the news of Natalie Portman's and Benjamin, Benjamin Milpier's uh you know commitment to stay together despite his indiscretions and all of my twitter is jokes about Jonathan Safran Foer wanting to get back together with Natalie Portman. Back together. We put in like uh, quote marks too. Right. So, well, so I I I make a lot of jokes on here about how I don't read and I don't learn to read. And I feel like sometimes it gives the impression that I sneer at books and I don't, and I have sort of like uh, set myself opposed to that world. Honestly, couldn't be more opposite. I think if I had the life of leisure that I would want to live, I would be reading books all the time. I think part of the reason why I make those jokes is because I'm kind of so annoyed that I never seem to... Time management is always a struggle for old Joe. So um, I never seem to have the time to commit to being a reader. And so I am very jealous of people around me who talk about like, well, I read this book and I read these amount of books in this month. And I read like these amount of books this year. And I'm like, I want that life. And I don't think it's those people have, like, copious amounts of more free time and, like, are, like, you know, dithering around in their lives of of privilege. I think those people manage their time in a way that prioritizes them being able to read a book. So, like, this is not being me being a, a busier beaver than anybody else. It's well, just... What? Yes, yes. 
also know because I think a lot of those people who are reading umpteen books in a, a week or whatever um, are not people who are going back and watching the earliest seasons of Project One Runway as you and I both are. Kurt. It's a fair criticism. <laughs> That's a fair critique, Chris. You're not wrong. Um, they're know, also not like I watch trash like that, and I'm like, I could be reading a book. They're also not like watching just random YouTube videos that the algorithm floats up to, to me in their mm-hmm. downtime is the other thing. Um, but I also feel like I couldn't read just in my downtime because I need to really dedicate time. That's why I don't I, I know a lot of people are like, oh, just read before you go to bed. I'm like, I'll fall asleep. Not because yeah, the books that's the are boring way for me to read a book a page at a time. That's the thing is I'll or like I'll do a thing where all of a sudden I'll like realize that like I kind of spaced for the last four pages and have to like double back and go back and like read it again. And I'm like, I, I joke that I'm a dummy. I, I'm not a dummy. I'm, I'm, you know, this is not a bad movie. It's a good movie. Um, um, I just, but anyway, all of which is to say that I wish. I were the kind of person who is more plugged into the literary Books. scene. And so I, when we were preparing to um, talk about this movie, I texted a bunch of friends who I know are, if not in the literary scene, like are more conversant in that universe. Because I know that Jonathan Safran Foer is somebody who a lot of people, like he's somebody like I'm aware of mostly because like, People on Vulture and in New York Magazine like make like snide jokes about him or whatever. So it's like he's somebody who is enough of a known quantity that like he has a standing. And so I'm just like, what's the deal with Jonathan Safran Foer? And interestingly enough, I got a lot of different types of responses, and and a lot of it basically lined up with what my general sense of him was, which is. He's, you know, this sort of like pretentious Brooklynite, you know, in the wrapped up in the sort of Franzen generation, Jonathan Ames, this sort of like Brooklyn Brownstone, Park Slope, whatever, um, that he was sort of acclaimed from a very young age that the divisiveness of he also wrote uh, extremely loud and incredibly close subsequent yeah consider this our extremely loud and incredibly close episode as well also that so that book and movie but like before the movie even the book was very divisive um and then but like before we get to even the natalie portman stuff which i think like really is like the cherry on top of it but like comes from a very a a privileged background let's say you know father is a lawyer and a fairly prominent lawyer mother is a rabbi and a fairly prominent rabbi and um and I, I said to a friend of mine as I was texting him, I was like, anytime that the term day school comes up in a Wikipedia article, I'm like, I know a lot about you already. He went to like <laughs> Georgetown day school or whatever. I was just like, okay. Um, uh, and so one of three like uh, sons who all ended up like, you know, to some degree or another uh, notable. His one brother founded, oh, what's the... Um, Oh, shit. Hold on. Because uh, one of them was, like, editor of the New Republic. And one of them was... Um, hold on. I'm gonna... I thought I had all the tabs that I wanted to have open, open. Um, his older brother is a former editor of the New Republic. His younger brother founded Atlas Obscura, which is a uh, sort of online 
literary magazine, travel magazine, something or other, whatever. It's a thing that it's one of those okay. other things where it's like heard of it. Um, and then Jonathan Safran Foer, uh, went to Princeton and took creative writing at Princeton and his, uh, thesis advisor was Joyce Carol Oates. <laughs> so, um, everything is illuminated begins as essentially his creative writing thesis under the advisement of Joyce Carol Oates. And Joyce, get drunk on Twitter and tell us what you think about Jonathan Safran Foer. <laughs> so he writes Everything is Illuminated, which is a work of fiction based on a a trip to Eastern Europe that he actually took after his sophomore year of college. He's uh, uh, summer after his sophomore year of college. He goes to... Eastern Europe. I can't remember whether it was specifically Ukraine or like the somewhere in that sort of general vicinity. The book and film are set in the Ukraine. With a with a Ukraine, yes, with a similar purpose of sort of finding out something about this person who he thought was instrumental in helping his grandfather escape the Holocaust. And through and again, I've mentioned before how. It's somewhat dispiriting that a lot of the research material that is available on YouTube is from old Charlie Rose interviews, but from a Charlie Rose interview that I read or that I listened to. Here I am, uh, uh, Los Culturista, sing it up with uh, mixing up readers and listeners and whatnot. Anyway, um, uh, Jonathan Saffron Four doesn't doesn't end up finding this person, like comes nowhere near finding this person. It also kind of doesn't have in his in his own uh telling of it doesn't have the kind of um uh so you know truth dawning experience that he wanted to have out of this thing that it was a little bit sort of pedestrian and and disappointing and yet out of this he decides to write a fictional version of kind of how he wishes that whole thing had gone which I think speaks to maybe a lot of people's problems with Jonathan Safran Foer as a writer, as a novelist, in that he sort of takes these real antecedents, the Holocaust or 9-11, and then writes up the sort of, I'm not going to say whimsical, because I think that's an overused term with something like this, but sort of a... Fabulistic. Um, a, yes, and sort of a... um a more sort of like a uh, literary version of events surrounding these things that allow these events to be viewed in a light of um, something that feels illuminating, not to like, I keep trying not to use the term illuminating <laughs> because like, it's too perfect, but like that, that kind of thing that, um, and I, spoiler, ended up really liking the movie of everything is illuminated. And it took me a while before I realized that I was liking this movie. And I went on a little bit of a journey with this movie. But by the end, I was really moved by it, and I really liked it. And it made me think that I would actually really like the novel, even though I know mm-hmm. that the movie takes a lot out of it. And we'll talk about that, too, maybe after we do the plot description. Because I want From to what from I you. remember of the book, because at this point I read it 20 years ago, Yeah, from what I remember of the book, it is more told from Boris's point of view, and you get that whole, like broken english uh alex you, know. you mean alex is the character in the movie at least oh the actor's name is Boris. oh there you go yes <laughs> uh yes from his point of view and you know it becomes like this 
punchline in the movie, but it's also a punchline in the book in a way. But like you have to, as a reader, be filtering out his his language. limitations with language right. to understand to understand Jonathan. I did actual quotes with my fingers, you right. know, as the character who is right. the name of the author. You know. Well, the other thing, though, from what I'm given to understand is that the novel also has a significant portion of its narrative taking place not only in in the village uh, in the time leading up to the the war, but also like several generations before that, right? With his sort of like great, great, great grandmother. Right. And it's not a big book. So like, I don't think it's a huge portion of the book, if I remember correctly. But it's probably the biggest portion that's taken out entirely from the movie. Right, right. Because I know just reading the reviews of the movie, um, there are, there's, that gets mentioned. Um, Yeah. But I also think you look at like he's Jonathan Safran Foer is the kind of person who would write himself into his novel as the main character as in in that name. And I'm sure a lot of that goes into he wants to, you know, pay tribute to his family and there's there's I don't want to I don't want to apply sort of sinister intent to Jonathan Safran Foer. I think there's a lot of sort of demonization of him as a personality type, this child of privilege, this sort of pretentious Brooklynite, mm-hmm. this, and then the Natalie Portman thing, which I will let you explain because I've been talking too much, um, really plays into this. <laughs> so, okay. I actually maybe don't remember the whole, I remember that there's a thing where he said that they dated and she was like, um, actually, but I thought that was Moby. I don't know the Moby of it all. Here, so here's what I is there multiple gleaned. people who have been like, I dated Natalie Portman. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. I think Natalie Portman sort of built herself a a not built herself, but like became kind of an avatar of Jewish dream girl <laughs> to her, uh, for I think probably a whole generation of people. But so from what I was able to glean, and this is this dovetails with how I remember it, this was around 2015, 2016, something like that. Um, that he and Natalie Portman had been maintaining a uh correspondence and a friendship through essentially email. Since essentially his novel. She was a big fan of the novel. She was a she talked publicly about how his uh his book about vegetarianism which i think is called eating animals eating which animals I also read is uh and he's 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 very big in vegetarianism that's sort of like one of like right. the top 3 things to know about Jonathan Seffron Foer is mm-hmm. he is like major major uh uh, uh evangelical about his vegetarianism and that book i remember it being somewhat simplistic but like offering certain amount of nuggets of information nuggets cuz he data, writes a letter to the Tyson chicken know, corporation uh vegetarian yeah. nuggets um uh-huh. uh yeah. what what's the like a happy star uh is that a, brand, a vegetarian Morning Star, one of those. right? Morning Star, um, I think. Yes, Morning Star, yeah. delicious. Uh, sponsor. Sure. I'll take your podcast. word for it. <laughs> yeah, seriously, Morning Star Veggie Burgers sponsor. Let's our podcast. take a break. <laughs> Hi, listeners. I will lie through Morning my teeth Star. about enjoying veggie burgers if you give us money for me to do so. <laughs> um, I will one hundred percent. Anyway, that book, while also being you know somewhat self-aggrandizing, is. Did also, I thought, provide for maybe the everyday viewer some real uh, 
you know, some factoids that, you know, might actually give them pause and ultimately be effective. This is basically what I've read about that book, that it is actually like pretty good journalism in terms of, you know, the 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 meat, uh, the, you know, agribusiness meat Mm -hmm. uh, uh, industry, while also at the same time like layering onto it this sort of twee story about like i'm a dad now and you know this is sort of you know that kind of a thing um writing a letter to the tyson chicken corporation to like ask them politely to you know uh yeah whatever uh go on with the portman thing right right right. so portman like says publicly that that book uh, helped convince her to become a vegan and so she's like she's a big fan he's a big fan they have I this course narrates or maybe produced the documentary that was adapted from it it's very possible and she's at this time becoming a filmmaker and she's very 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 much into her filmmaking is very uh, attuned to her judaism her sort of mm-hmm. like back to her roots kind of a thing and that, that's obviously a lot of what everything is illuminated is about so like you can see why they would have you know been drawn to each other and a friendship and they so there's this email correspondence that eventually gets leaked to somebody i think at some point aj delario is involved which like grain of salt grain of salt um but they eventually get published in if not the new york times magazine that like some new york times offshoot and the emails are not exactly like this torrid love affair but they are you know kind of intense and very sort of like intellectual and he you get you can read these things and really get the sense that he is trying to sort of you know draw her in with his you know his intellect and 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 there is a if not necessarily an emotional affair like there is something there going on in these in these emails right but then Jonathan Safran Foer at that point divorces his wife this is the scuttlebutt of it all not to be aquafina no aquafina but this is the scuttlebutt is um that jonathan saffron for divorces his wife on the idea that he is now going to leave he's going to be leaving his wife for natalie portman and natalie portman and this is not in like the any of the emails that came forward but this is but essentially gets reported as gossip is that natalie portman is like Oh, I'm not leaving my husband. And like, (laughs) you probably shouldn't have left your wife. And like, they're not even like having an affair. It's still basically, this is email correspondence, right? And so he kind of jumps the gun and divorces his wife. And he, and like, when this all comes out, it's super embarrassing and it makes him look bad in that, like, for obvious reasons, but also makes it look like he over, overshot his own level of confidence that Natalie Portman was going to leave her husband because of these, you know, very emotionally intense emails that they were sending to each other. So it like, it makes him look bad. It makes him look dumb and sort of plays into this idea of, you know, child of privilege, Brooks, Brooklyn hipster jerk off who thought that he could get, Natalie Portman because his emails were so irresistible which like that's the uncharitable reading of it all but it's definitely a reading of it all that is supported at least somewhat in the text so this is like the Michael Hanukkah version of you've got mail <laughs> sure yes so anyway um 
This is if Ruben Oslin makes You've Got Mail. Kind of, yes. So it's like, it's 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 embarrassing, and sort of that's kind of where he still is evidenced by the tweets that you were seeing in the timeline with any time Natalie Portman's romantic life uh, becomes a story, out come the tweets about Jonathan Safran Foer, which is like, you know, whatever. He's doing fine. He's got, you know, money and success. We're not going to weep. I mean, like, his success also makes sense for the dog pile because he's seen as this pretentious person, but like, wild success right out of the gate. But then when you look at the actual material of his books, like, even the, like, the good ones, like, it's corny, right? Like, it ultimately, like, it has been viewed as that by a lot of people. I think a lot of people really like his stuff. I don't want to like it's ultimately sincere, earnest yeah. stuff that is not like you know their comparisons early on in his career to him being I don't know uh, you know an early John Updike or something. And it's right. like the well, that's not... the that's the problem of the Wunderkind, right? Where he like he publishes right. this book and he's in his early twenties, and it's you know, this phenomenon and like, oh God, like I'm, I can't imagine how that doesn't end up going to your head at some point. But here's the other thing. And this is the thing I sort of like poked into when I talked about how I wish I was more, you know, literate in this literary world. Sorry, double uh, adjective. Um, But I also, and this is a thing we have kind of touched on and other things. Anytime we talk about anything set on the Upper West Side or in Brooklyn, where I will own my sort of bougie ambitions in a way that, like, I'm sure it doesn't speak super well of me, but, like, there is a not insignificant version of me that wishes that I could, that I was sort of, that that aspires to that, that aspires to living in Nora Ephron's apartment building. You know what I mean? Mm. That aspires to... um you know, getting a townhouse in Fort Greene, you know what I mean? That aspires to, and like, and all that that entails, right? So anytime anybody talks about like Park Slope parents or like Upper West Side doyens or whatever, and I'm like, yeah, but also I kind of like, I I would, you know what I mean? (laughs) And like, this is, this is probably like, again, this is the kind of thing I should tell to a therapist or a boyfriend and I currently have neither and I should Not have both. Not to the many Garys who listen to this show. Um, but, but, <laughs> Keep uh, it in the group chat. <laughs> yeah, essentially, yes. Um, but anyway, this is sort of... So I see somebody like Jonathan Seffron for and I have sort of a kind of a knee-jerk sympathy at least towards at least what he's attempting to do, right? right. And... I'll own that. And I'll own that, like, that's the perspective that I'm coming for. And I understand that, like, cringe. that, that certain critics see that exact same profile and are like, this is, this is inauthentic to me. This is, uh, this is inherently suspect. And like, mm-hmm. I, sure. I, you know, I think that's also probably a valid way of looking at it. So, uh, but, you know, radical honesty all on the table. Um, if you have a vacant Upper West Side apartment and want to give it to me, I'm open. <laughs> anyway. All right. As you were saying. Uh, no, I was going to say, uh, all of this is kind of outside the reception of this movie, however. I'm not so sure it was outside the reception of 
extremely loud and incredibly close. A movie which it felt like from all angles people wanted to be dubious of, and then they saw the movie, and then, you know, the movie's a piece of shit. But, but the not, were people more open about anticipating the novel, and then all of a sudden people, like, slowly came to the realization that the novel was bad? Because I feel like going into the movie, there was maybe at least more of a split of some people liked the book and some Mm -hmm. people really hated the book. Book is way more openly sentimental. I would argue it probably is somewhat of a ripoff of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, Mm. which was already a successful book. Um, The thing about... Everything is illuminated and extremely loud and incredibly close that I think, you know, it puts both movies at a detriment is like just the structure of them, the story that they tell, you know, the voice that they come from. It just works better in a book Mm -hmm. Um, because there's a certain level of predictability to both of these movies, I I think extremely loud is a significantly worse movie but you know it you know in the book you can get caught up in the you know the narration the like perspective that's being given whereas the movie both movies are a little more flat footed somewhat you know it there there's a certain thinness to the narrative that it becomes much more apparent i think uh, on the screen than it does on the page yeah um i can see but let's get into it let's get into it i'm excited to hear what you have to say about this movie because it sounds like you liked it quite a bit i'm i did more in the middle yeah um but listeners we are talking about 2005's Everything is Illuminated, written and directed by who? Liev Schreiber, actually. Um, based on the Jonathan Safran Foer novel, the movie stars Elijah Wood, Boris Leskin, Eugene Hutz, Larissa Lorette, and Jonathan Safran Foer himself in a cameo. Yeah, who is he? I missed him in the. In, uh, as I, I was watching. Yeah, where is, I think it's like he's holding a bag or yeah, something. Yeah, I um, definitely missed it. Uh, he is credited as Leaf Blower. So okay. he's like on the street somewhere. Probably sure. doesn't even have a line. Sure. But he's there. Classic uh, cameo. Like I said, the movie did the fall festival run and then opened in limited release from Warner Independent on September 16th, 2006. Yes. Mr. Joe Reed, are you ready for a 60-second plot description of Everything is Illuminated? Yeah, though it's probably going to be long, but yes. <laughs> All right, then your 60-second plot description of Everything is Illuminated starts right now. Elijah Wood is Jonathan Safran Foer, who collects artifacts and memorabilia about his family, which he keeps in little Ziploc bags. And on his grandmother's deathbed, she hands him a photograph of his late grandfather from the old country, where he's with a woman named Augustine. And Jonathan decides to take a trip to Ukraine to see if he can track this w- down this woman, who he credits with saving his grandfather from the Holocaust, and thus his whole subsequent family line. Uh, his Ukrainian tour guides are Alex, who is a tracksuit and Kangol hat granted sentience by a blue fairy, and his widowed grandfather, who is their 
driver despite thinking he's gone blind, and Grandfather's deranged dog, whose name is Sammy Davis Jr. Jr. Slowly, it's revealed that Grandfather has memories of this area of western Ukraine that they're driving in. Their search for Trakumbrod, the town mentioned on the photograph that Jonathan has, takes them finally to a house in the middle of a vast sunflower field where an old woman keeps boxes and boxes of the trinkets and memories that are all that remain of the town of Trakumbrod after the Nazis massacred nearly everyone. We learn eventually that Grandfather lived in Trakumbrod as a young man and he miraculously survived the Nazi firing squad and then abandoned his Jewish identity in order to escape. The old woman also tells Jonathan the story of his grandfather who had married Augustine and he traveled to the U.S. a week before the massacre happened to find a home for them and Augustine was killed by the Nazis. Grandfather, having wordlessly confirmed the truth of his heritage to Alex, then commits suicide that night. Jonathan returns to America with a Ziploc full of soil from his grandfather's hometown. While back in Ukraine, Alex and his family wearing yarmulkes give his grandfather a Jewish burial next to the Trockenbrod Memorial. The end. Uh, just like 25 seconds over. I find that commendable. So here's my thing with this movie is the first half hour or so of this movie, I really thought I was going to hate it. And <laughs> it, it's... say No, you're, you, you want to no, say... Well, something. because Alex in this movie feels... Yes. Uh, this is a year his before His character Borat. is a problem that I thought or his character is somebody who I thought was a problem from the way the first half of half hour of the movie carries right, out. Right, because it feels very, you know, stereotype cartoonish in a way that, you know, the book isn't, you know, not poking fun at this character but like it, it it's just a it's a tonal There is a language that this feels you know, you have the freeze frame thing of him getting punched by his dad. You know, it's it's a little over the top. It uh, it plays as this comedy, but it's the comedy of there's a way that Western entertainment had sort of come to humorously define Eastern Europe slash Russia slash I know this is Ukraine, but like this kind of um, this kind of guy who you know, former Soviet, uh, out of the Soviet Republic, there's this generation that that goes through the westernization of, you know, the former Soviet Union and learns through American culture, but like all the dumbest and worst American culture, which, like I said, it's like Kangol hat, tracksuit, gold chains, um, disco dancing where everything looks like a bad music video. Like, you know, uh, I don't think Entourage was a thing by this point, or maybe it had just become a thing, but like, feels no, like... Entourage had already happened. Feels like he's... Yeah, that's probably true. Okay, feels like he's learned about American culture through like Entourage and like late seasons of the real world and like this Grand sort Theft of... Auto. Right, right. All this sort of like the trashiest aspects of American culture. And it's a way to sort of like make fun of that like simulacrum of culture that ex- mm-hmm. that sort of exists there and also at the same time the early portions of this road trip that they're on it's like there's alex who like speaks this garbled faux f- like a lot of 10 cent words that 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 are imperfect substitutes for more accurate five cent words like that kind of a thing mm-hmm. um he says repose instead of sleep he says you know what i mean like that kind of a thing um 
he's more like uh, he learned English from like a Chrysler commercial. Sure. But like Alex is this ridiculous person. And then like the grandfather who thinks he's blind, but isn't blind, but is their driver. And the dog who is a seeing eye bitch who is deranged and who like bears his teeth at Jonathan, who is afraid of dogs. And the car is this sort of like very like picture in your head what I mean when I say like Eastern European jalopy. Like that's what that's the car. It's like putter, 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 putter. You know what I mean? Like this whole kind of thing. Um, and like, and the, the towns that they drive through at the beginning are these very sort of like, like depresso Eastern European imagery, these sort of like concrete blocks of, of buildings. And, and it's all sort of gray and sad. And it's like, Oh, like this is the, is, is this the movie then this sort of like goofy road trip where, you know, fussy Jonathan with, and we'll talk about Jonathan in a second because I like, there's a lot to say of that character, but like fussy Jonathan is like a, an odd fit with these sort of quirky characters in this puttering little car. And they're going to go through like awful looking Eastern Europe and whatever. And then wears a full suit and his nerd glasses, the entire movie. So, okay. Here's the thing about Elijah Wood, uh, as Jonathan, Elijah Wood already has pretty big eyes. Like, surprisingly that he hasn't been in every Tim Burton movie. Because, like, Elijah Wood is a small, little man. I've seen Elijah Wood in person one time, and he was at... You weirdly, needed a micro... You needed a magnifying glass. I... He... He... He, he was at a bar, the very first neighborhood I ever lived in, uh, in, uh, in New York City. I lived in Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn. And he was at the sort of like neighborhood bar that I would frequent when I wanted to just like go get a bite to eat or whatever at this, like on the outdoor patio. And I saw him there and I, I said he was like three apples high, which is the, as tall as the Smurf is. Um, and, but just like sweet looking this, you know, just white t-shirt and jeans and just sort of very, nice um, but like, he's a small man and he has a big face with big eyes. And that's probably why he's a movie star. You know what I mean? Like, that's why mm-hmm. he's, you know, uh, has had the career that he is because whatever. But he are, so he already has big eyes. The glasses they put him in are these oversized, like, impossibly round. You know how they talk about, like, there is no such thing as a perfect circle that, like, you know what I mean? Like, the, these are the exceptions. Two perfect <laughs> circles of giant glasses that magnify his already big eyes. So he's, like, 80% eye anytime they do a shot of him. And it's because he's, right, he's the observer. He's the one who, like, he, everybody else is sort of taking up the action and he's watching. And sometimes that feels like a little too perfect of a, of a you know, of symbolism, and sometimes I think it works because I think Elijah Wood's face is very expressive, even when it's not. But it's doing also much. like he's supposed to be so perfectly tailored at every point to accentuate suit. not yeah. just his awkwardness, but like the lack of worldliness of these other people in a way yes. that just feels like base level. So comedy. that's the first half hour of the movie, and I really am not jiving with it at all and i'm like this feels stupid this feels condescending this just also isn't fun i don't want to be stuck in a car with these people with alex who is obnoxious and with his anti-semitic 
grandfather who keeps mumbling things about like i'm sick of taking jews around to to look at their heritage or whatever i'm sick of taking rich american jews to because that's their business right they are tour they're they're right. tour guides and the tours that they give are for rich american jews to come to eastern europe and research their family history and so i just don't want to be in the car with these people but i think ultimately the bug becomes the feature then because the movie then becomes more lyrical and more um the it takes a turn and the turn is mostly focused on the grandfather once you find out that the grandfather is more plugged into this story once he finds out that the town is called Trockenbrode the town named on the photograph is Trockenbrode he all of a sudden becomes more invested in taking Jonathan on this trip. Mm -hmm. And he really wants to help this guy find his family. And you start to wonder why. And there are things like when they're driving down and he sees, you know, you can see the moon in the daytime sometimes, and he sees the position of the moon. And all of a sudden you can start to tell like, he's navigating because the whole thing, a lot of the thing is like, Oh, they're lost. They don't know where they're going. They don't stop for directions. They don't know how to find this town that may or may not even exist at this point. Um, this, cause it's a shtetl town, right? You know what I mean? Like it's mm -hmm. a former, um, they're in this area of Western Ukraine that I believe during the lead up to the war was part of Poland. I think that's why it was Nazi occupied is because don't mm -hmm. quote me. Here's the other thing. Watching this movie now in the middle of like the Russia Ukraine conflict, Absolutely. I need to disclaimer that like not to like I hate dumb bitch gay culture where it's just like I'm so stupid and I don't know anything, but I want to be on Front Street and that like I have right. limitations as to how much expertise I can speak on with like the Russia Ukraine situation right now. And this movie calls for that. It, it when definitely, you, watch it now. Uh, you know, I I was very I I too. Uh, you know, I I mean, like I have a general sense of what's going on, but it also makes it. We're talking about a movie that's buried. This is not going to be one of our most popular episodes because people don't remember this movie. I would recommend but, like, people watch it, it. it. It's kind of you know sitting right there for a reexamination in modern times in that context by people who are you know scholars on the current. War. Uh, first, a warning though. Uh, insert Isabella Rossellini uh, from Death Becomes Her. First, a warning. <laughs> now, a warning. now a warning. When you go to watch this, if you go to watch this, don't watch it on the Roku channel and don't watch it on Tubi TV because in both of those, they are both missing the subtitles. You can close caption the English that you need to be able to follow. The but story. the Russian, anything that is spoken in Russian, is unsubtitled. And it took me a while, as Chris knows. I was texting him last night, and I said. The Russian is unsubtitled, and I don't know whether it's a stylistic choice or not. And at some point, so many scenes happen with exclusively Russian language yeah. that you know it's fake. Eventually, so like, you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I yeah. paid for the $3.99 rental on Amazon, and then I got the subtitle. So, like, buyer beware. Something's wrong with the Tubi and Roku channel version of this. I feel like I've heard this about other movies Wouldn't before. surprise me. It's almost as if no one is protecting the Warner Independent Library as we would. Yes. So anyway, back we'll to talk the about Warner Independent. Event. Back to Grandfather and Navigating by the Moon though. I think that's the turning point of the movie for me is when you realize that he's navigating by the moon because he remembers Right. He has some type of story and I think he has the a first memory of this pulse is that he might have been a Nazi. That's um, yes, the movie but the then, movie like, lets you, kind you of sit in that realize place for that's a second. not likely what and like he might have been a Nazi and has some guilt. 
um, about it. But the, and I, I think, think that's what Alex. No, it's not that. But I think that's what Alex believes for a little while. Once because Alex right. twigs to the fact that like grandfather has more memories of this place than he has let on before and that he has ever told them. And so I think Alex starts to wonder. Because a lot of part of the parts of this movie are Alex is an imperfect translator. A- Alex translates maybe half of the things that get said mm-hmm. to him back to Jonathan. So Jonathan, as an observer, is kind of only observing half of what we're even observing as a viewer of the movie. Right. But so Alex, at some point, you get the sense that like is worried because he has that scene with Jonathan later where he's like, my grandfather is a good man. And I think he's trying to convince Jonathan and also himself because at this point he thinks that his grandfather's past is that he was a Nazi. In, you know, old because Alex is like thrown by this notion that comes from Jonathan's grandmother that like living in the Ukraine, uh, in this area of Western Ukraine that maybe it was Poland back then, um, they were very hostile to the Jews anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, like, and and Alex is like, really? Was it like that back then? Which feels a little bit like, wouldn't you know? Like, I, that hasn't really probably gone away. But anyway, blah, 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 blah. What I'm saying is, once we reach that point where there's more to know about Grandfather, and certainly by the point where we reach the old woman's house in this field, this vast field of sunflowers that is so beautiful. That shot of the field of sunflowers with the path leading up to the house and where you're far enough away that the laundry blowing in the wind looks maybe like a chorus of people sort of like singing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Beautiful Mm -hmm. shot. Leah Schreiber, credit to Leah Schreiber. And we'll talk about him soon. Um, But We'll talk about the general visual vibe, too, especially if we talk about the trailer. I think the grandfather says some things as they're driving around in the car that I quoted because I wanted to – I think this is a very big linchpin of what made me start really loving this movie is they – as they go further west – the land becomes more pastoral. There's a lot more greenery, mm-hmm. these sort of like concrete blocks of buildings. And like you, you had initially seen like these very sort of like downtrodden people digging a well and everything looks ruined, essentially. It's this sort of like imagine in your head this sort of like Eastern European ruin porn that, you know, that has been depicted in a lot of things. That gives way to these sort of lush green. Uh, open fields and trees and whatever. And in Jonathan, the physical space as you move away from Russia. As you move away from Russia. And so Jonathan remarks, he says it's beautiful. And grandfather in Russian to Alex says, tell him this is the most fertile land in Eastern Europe. He said before the war, this was the most beautiful place in the world. And he talks about Odessa, which is the town, the city that they're from. He says, They actually shot in Odessa. Tell him the sand on the beaches is more soft than a woman's hair. That Odessa is the perfect place to fall in love and start a family. And this is when Alex sort of looks at his grandfather and is like, there's something more than you're not saying. But it also is a statement of what this place was like before the war and what these he doesn't say people but you get you you then connect that dot of this is what the people were also maybe like before the war that they were mm-hmm. that this family this Alex and his grandfather the first thing you see of this family the father is punching Alex in the face right the mother is this sort of you know uh very sort of like she's got the downtrodden she's got the mustache and everything is sort of depicted in this cartoonishly air quotes ugly way right brutal uh ugly way and you get that and the the movie is saying how like this is what the uh 
inhumanity of this war, not to mention the Holocaust of it all, the aftermath of it is the ruination generations across um, you know across landscapes it it does it ruins the land it blights the land it blights the the you know the aesthetics as well as the people it hardens these people right It, it it you know and so you get to the house in the sunflower field that is not only sort of set off from everything but you find out eventually that this woman who lives here whose name is uh lista by the end of the her one of the last things she says is is the war over yet like yeah, it's so she, she's so she's remote and cut off and she doesn't even know she's cut herself over. off from everything and it's like this oasis it's you know magical realism almost this kind of oasis mm-hmm. where she has kept this town alive in boxes of mementos and she has she has retained this sort of pastoral gorgeousness because she has sort of kept this place out of time and removed it from the sort of timeline of events that happen in Europe. So once I realized that that's what this movie was doing, the beginning part of the movie then feels like part of a timeline and that the beginning part of the movie that I found so objectionable is telling part of that story too. And so by the end of the movie, I'm much more, even more so than like, not even forgiving the part of the first part of the movie, but like knowing that that's an essential part. I also want to read, and then I'll let you talk because I know I've been filibustering. Um, <laughs> I just really, I ended up really, really feeling something for this movie, and I do want to get it out. Um, no, I, I, I was very curious. As soon as you said that you uh, enjoyed the movie, that I, I, I really did. So in Ebert's review, he says, and this is the thing that I that end up that ends up really dovetailing with how I feel about the movie. So he says, Everything is Illuminated is a film that grows in reflection. The first time I saw it, I was hurtling down the tracks of a goofy ethnic comedy when suddenly we entered dark and dangerous territory. I admired the film, but did not sufficiently appreciate its arc. I went to see it again at the Toronto Film Festival, feeling that I had missed some notes, had been distracted by Jonathan's eyeglasses and other relative irrelevancements, quote, or parentheses, as Alex might say. The second time I was more aware of the journey Schreiber was taking us on and why it is necessary to begin where he begins in order to get where he's going. That, to me, is my experience of, of Everything mm-hmm. is Illuminated and, and why I end up really, really liking it. You know, I think that a lot of that is true about the movie. I think I'm not quite on the same wavelength as you and Ebert in terms of how well I think it pulls it off. I do think that it is somewhat intentional. I think that, I mean, like, it's a first-time director, you know. those And a last-time director. He has not directed a feature since then. That, that, like not perspective shift, but like the almost meta level of commenting Mm -hmm. on what you're watching. I think that's really hard to pull off. And I don't think the movie completely does, but I don't think that this is a bad movie by any stretch. This isn't a movie that I think should be essentially non-existent. And I don't think it's perfect, but it ends up being, I end up being far, far more on its wavelength than certainly I expected that I was going Mm -hmm. to be after that first half hour. Um, I do understand people who might consider this movie to be too twee or, you know, uh, because I think it's also a difficult thing, especially for a first time filmmaker to pull off that this is indeed a fable. If you 
uh, yeah. unpack this in any type of way that thinks that this story is trying for realism. And it leans on the score a little. the plot, but also, like, yeah. you know, the fact that she's, uh, you know, so removed from the world and uh, essentially keeps these artifacts as the only thing to keep this town alive. She's a there collector are, like Jonathan that, is a collector. that are... Huh? I said she's a collector like Jonathan is a collector. It really becomes sure, very sure, symmetrical sure. in that way. That parallel is very interesting. But also maybe too perfect, right? Like I could understand where people would think it's a little too too neat that uh, you know. Right. And it's there's something about film that is a much more literal even when you're doing something fantastical. It's a much more literal we as an audience take information on a literal level in a way that we maybe don't in a book. Yeah. That I think that there's just a lot to pull off. That this movie does an admirable job, but not a perfect sure. job of doing. How do you feel like it does with the Jonathan character as played by Elijah Wood? <laughs> Maybe it's my limitations because I don't, I don't know how interesting of a performer I think Elijah Wood is. Sure. I understand his casting, and like his casting also kind of added to the kind of expectation around this movie, right? Like, we talk all He's the only star in this movie. Yeah. But it's also after the Lord of the Rings movies, you know, it seemed, at least on paper, like a cashing in of his... As much as he's someone who doesn't really chase stardom, but, like, a way of cashing in on, you know, the success of that movie to... um, Well, I want to talk about that... Maybe being a launchpad for... Let's detour that for a second, and then I want to get into how you feel like the character then comes off. Because I, I, I will say, like, it, I think because the Jonathan character, to me, while, you know, the context around him and the things that he's discovering change throughout the story, I don't think he changes very much. I think yeah. it's smarter of the book for Jonathan to not be the protagonist in the way that, you know, when you cast Elijah Wood in a movie, yeah. he, you know, gets that kind of attention. But I I just, I don't know, maybe it's a, a role more for a character actor than... Well, and the movie is very aware of Jonathan, the character, being... yeah. If not necessarily a cipher, Jonathan, the character being not ultimately an observer more than a protagonist. And I think, and this was the thing that that Jonathan Safran Foer, the author, mentioned in that interview that I watched, which is we think we're being, we think that the journey we're being taken on is Jonathan's journey, and it ends up being Alex's journey. That that yeah. even in the fact that like Jonathan is taking this trip to find out about the woman who he feels saved his grandfather from the holocaust now that story ends up being not quite exactly it that ultimately Mm -hmm. jonathan's grandfather had left for america the week before this massacre happens to find a place for them to live and then was going to send back for augustine and augustine they had married by this point she was pregnant with their child and so like in a kind of roundabout metaphorical symbolical way she saved him in that he would not have made that trip to america were it not for her. But I think Jonathan is maybe searching for a more um, literal savior of his family kind of thing. What the person who ends up getting the sort of deep revelation about his family history ends up being Alex. And you see by the Mm -hmm. end where he and his father and his brother are all wearing yarmulkes at the the gravesite that his grandfather now has a, a, a Jewish tombstone and they 
you know, there's there's now this very important and rich part of his family history that is now known to him, that is now, sorry, illuminated for him. And then he becomes the author of the book uh, by that by the end of the movie. And he's already narrating it, so it's not like it's a surprise that he's the author of the book, but he's... Um, but I just want to talk about Elijah Wood before we go back into Jonathan for half a second, because you're right in that, like, this is a cashing in on The Lord of the Rings. It's a really interesting career situation, though, where he films all three Lord of the Rings movies at the same time. So by the time the third one comes out at the end of 2003, it's been four years I know there were like certain things where there were some things that were reshot. They did a lot of reshoots for those movies too. So but it, like But for the grand majority of it, it's been 4 years since he filmed the majority of those movies, right? Right. And so he doesn't really emerge as a for follow-ups to that until Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind in 04. So in in succession, he fil- he the movies that get released are Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Then in 2005, he's in three movies. He's in Everything is Illuminated. He's in Sin City playing this, like, serial killer with, not like... Not speaking. With, like, not speaking role. Serial killer with mouths for what? Eyes. Once again, Elijah Wood's big old eyes become a thing. Um, isn't it right? Isn't it? He has, like, he's wearing the mirrored sunglasses and when he takes them off, they're, like... Or am I thinking of it's the... something like that. Because there's a character in The Sandman that the comics, the Sandman comics, who has big, sharp teeth for eyeballs. Maybe I'm conflating. But anyway, he's a serial killer with mirrored sunglasses. And then he's in that movie Green Street Hooligans with him and... Um, which the, really doesn't exist. Baby Boy Charlie Hunnam, which I definitely watched and I think is pretty good, actually. Um, but anyway, um, although I don't think you would like it. But anyway, um, <laughs> but like four movies and roles that go some really kind of interesting places far different from your Frodo Bagginses, right? He doesn't go back and do another action franchise ever, right? I don't think he's ever done that. And, right? I mean, uh, I don't think what so. Am I, am I forgetting Certainly anything? Certainly not I don't like think a I'm fantasy forgetting. franchise. He's definitely someone who's done his own thing, and that thing has not been a whole lot of significant roles. Right. And so, th- well, this is what I'm saying is, is I wish, and I know that, like, his career has, you know, took some, you know, twists and turns and 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 that, like, there was a, a disillusionment, I think, with Hollywood, but... I wish he had gotten more of the portion of his career that existed in 04 and 05. I like mm-hmm. I liked where this was going in 05 is what I'm saying. This Eternal Sunshine, Sin City, everything is illuminated, lots of different types of things sort of, you know, testing the waters and I I don't know, I'm I'm fond of him in, you know. Yeah. In a yeah, way. yeah, yeah. He does not seem like an asshole. Right. Um, that being said, I think that the role needs someone who's maybe a little more nuanced than he is. I kind of That's think fair. of him as somewhat of a broad uh, person and yeah. like, or a broad player. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
Yeah, I, I maybe I just can't put my finger on what is missing. Maybe it's just it feels like to me the way that the character is presented in the movie maintains that level of you know almost sketchy not sketchy as in uh nefarious sketchy as in like sketch comedy Mm. throughout the whole thing and that's partly because of elijah wood's performance it feels like there's a bit that's not being dropped yeah what did you think of the performances of alex and the grandfather the the grandfather is really good he's really great right i thought so too Um, Remind me that actor's name. I know Boris Leskin is the yeah. actor. He is a uh, Russian actor. I don't note anything on his filmography. Oh, he's apparently uh, in the movie Cadillac Man, the uh, the Robin Whoa. Williams movie Cadillac Man, playing Soviet husband. Um, he's a cab driver in Vampire's Kiss. He's uh, like small roles in things like Men in Black, sure. right? And uh, um, he died in only 2020. He died in uh, February of 2020 at the age of 97. Um, wow. so yeah, but, a, a, a you know, Soviet, uh, actor from, you know, the sort of the red curtain days. And I think the thing that like the tonal shift of the movie, if the movie pulls it off to any degree, it's partly because of his performance, because he has this kind of grounding presence to something that could be very cloying and very emotionally uh, manipulative. Like a, a, the, that's one of my things about this movie is that like I am not net negative on this movie, partly because you can so clearly see the version of this movie that is so much worse. You can see the extremely loud and incredibly close version Mm -hmm. of this movie that is very contrived and emotionally manipulative. And uh, I think there's there's a few things maintaining the balance, and one of them is his performance. Uh, And then there's Eugene uh, uh, Hutes, I imagine, with the umlaut, I believe we pronounce it Hutes. Yeah. Uh, who is not is a non actor playing Alex? He's a he's a, a punk band singer and uh, from uh, a band called Gogol Bordello, who are a uh, described as a gypsy punk. And I, when I say that, I should note that that is the name of the genre. I know there is uh, uh, controversy right. over whether the use of the term gypsy, but apparently, gypsy punk is a style of. Uh, music that crosses uh, apparently Romani music, traditional Romani music with punk. Um, That is a performance that, again, is very indicative of my journey with this movie, where at the beginning of the movie, (laughs) I'm like, this fucking guy, I can't handle it. Um, And by the end of the movie, I'm really, I'm really moved by what he does. He also, there was one interview or not interview, one review that I read that, is like he's kind of the spitting image of John Turturro, and uh, that is accurate. There is a uh, <laughs> there's a young Turturro uh, aspect to him, especially when he takes off the kangle and he sort of has this very Barton Fink hairdo. I was gonna say, where's his Barton Fink? Basically, yes. Um, and then the final cast member that we should shout out is Larissa Lorette, who plays Lista, who plays the old woman, who is really, like, talk about a linchpin of the movie. Like, that is where it really all uh, comes together for me. And um, I, th- I don't know. I think she's wonderful. So, yeah, I definitely figured I would end up probably liking this movie more than you. But, like, as somebody who had read the book, 
20 years ago. I know, I know, I know. But so, like, so is, was it so long ago that it doesn't really inform your viewing of it at all at this point? Um, I mean, it was definitely one of those things that as I'm watching the movie, I remember the experience of reading the book. Mm-hmm. Whereas on my own, if you'd asked me about the book, I might I might have needed the refresher of the movie. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say it informed my viewing of the movie. It more so as someone who has also read other uh, four books, um, it really kind of brought in more so it was informed by like, him as a writer and what his yeah. writing style is and what some of his writing hangups are. Right. Um, rather than this book itself. Sure. Um, you mentioned in our outline, the trailer for this movie, which I hadn't remembered. I watched it this morning. It has the Devochka song. It has the Devochka song. Little Miss Sunshine. So, right. So uh, the Devochka song, which is called How It Ends, is used uh, in the Everything is Illuminated trailer, which was a year before Little Miss Sunshine. Devochka does the a hybrid. It's, it's Devochka and a composer. Who's the other composer for Little Miss Sunshine? Hold on a second. I forget. Because um, it's like a hybrid score. Um, give me one second. Type, type, type. Clacky, clacky, clacky. Um, Michael Donna, of course, from uh, who did sure, the score sure, for the sure, piano, sure. the piano. Michael Donna from the piano, who uh, won uh, the score Oscar for Life of Pi. Um. Uh, so it's Devochka and Michael Donna, and um, Devochka sort of deconstructs their own songs to like you can hear how it ends in the score to Little Miss Sunshine although I'm not sure the song itself is ever actually used qua itself I think it might be briefly maybe like maybe in the first montage where you meet all these characters perhaps it's also used quite effectively in one of my favorites so you think you can dance routines of all time but that's beside <laughs> the point um <clears throat> shout out uh uh Neil Haskell who is currently on tour with Hamilton um Anyway, yes. So you have a strong memory of that trailer being like very effective. I remember that trailer being very impressive. Yeah. And it being part of it the has anticipation around voiceover this movie. narration, which feels like such it an artifact. It now feels like a very, very dated trailer. <laughs> it does. It's amazing. We've talked about this a little bit before. It's amazing how instantly dated any trailer with voiceover narration is and it's one of those things that like existed later than you think like again this is a 2005 movie and you would think like and and the voiceover narration makes it sound like an early 90s trailer because of i that. wonder if the cloverfield teaser maybe killed it like what is it that killed voiceover in trailers as a thing i would love for somebody to do a deep deep dive into that i would read i would happily do it if anyone the wants fuck. To. somebody give chris <laughs> file a bucket load of money to do a deep deep dive and talk to people to find out when that happened because i would be so interested um that that when interstitial title cards replaced uh uh voiceover narration it would be uh, amazing um you Talk about something while I peruse my notes, because I took a lot of notes. That's how you knew I liked this movie, is I took <laughs> many pages. We could notes. transition into talking about Leah Schreiber. Do it. Finally. His only feature film. His only feature directed film. He's directed some episodes of Ray Donovan, uh, the show that he had on show. Lasted forever. Yeah, Showtime, and it like lasted um, for fucking ever. 
obviously, you know, the Academy loves a uh, actor turned director um success story however you know there was some uh expectation around this movie because shriver was having a moment this is actually the same year that he wins his tony for glenglary glenn ross playing uh is it richie romano ricky romano uh, not ray romano oh richie roma richard roma ricky roma that's right not romano ricky roma the same role that gets uh pacino nominated for the film version yeah um, I don't. I think so, I had forgotten yeah. that he had won a Tony for that. He won a Tony. Yeah. This is also around the time that my dad and I are walking through New York, and we pass him and Naomi Watts uh, with a stroller with their Aww. baby, and my dad doesn't realize who they are until we pass them, and he's like, "Oh wait!" And I was like, "Don't, don't you do it? They're walking their baby. Leave them alone." I and he s- is a idiot teenager i saw them i was waiting uh at one of the uh hotels in toronto to do an interview for somebody else at tiff and i was waiting in this hallway where like everybody who came in to do interviews was going into different rooms and so like they were all passing by and it was like lupita nyango and david oyelowo for um oh what was the movie about queen of cotway the queen of cotway yes and I can't remember what Naomi and uh, Liev would have been there for. I think it was three generations. I think Naomi was there for uh, three generations, um, which was called something else at that moment about Ray uh, uh, when I saw it there. I know. But so I got to see them together. So that was nice. Um, One of my favorite tidbits about Liev Schreiber, an actor who I mostly knew as the ex-boyfriend from Walking and Talking, and of course, <laughs> Cotton Weary from Cotton Scream. Weary. 1996, a big year for Leo Schreiber, Walking and Talking and Scream, both in the same year. Um, although he's barely in the first Scream, right? He's only like in the shot where he's being You only see him in like TV footage. In TV footage and then it's Scream It's too. almost like it's... kind of miraculous that they still cast him in Scream They must have had... Like, I w- carry weight. Do we know that there was a two film plan for Scream? Because like it does feel in a lot of ways like there was. Just from the Cotton Weary character, just from I casting don't know him if as I've a person. I've ever like read a Kevin Williamson interview where he's talked about that. Um Because that casting, you're right. That casting is a casting that's aware of the fact that you're gonna want to bring this guy back because like he wasn't a nobody. He was known from indie right. films and, and theater at that point. So but my favorite tidbit about Lee F. Schreiber is that he was, maybe still is, but certainly was for the longest time, the voiceover guy for every ESPN documentary. Now, not the 30 for 30s. The the 30 for 30s are a different thing. Or maybe it was HBO. It might have been, or maybe both. Um, Maybe it's HBO sporting documentaries. But it's um, all of the sports documentaries docs that were produced by i think it maybe is hbo were all part of this like it wasn't like specifically a series but they were all sort of produced by the same uh production house essentially and he did the voice o- the voiceover narration for all of them so if you go back That's and you listen rich and he doesn't have especially when he gives his like narrator voice it doesn't really sound like anybody. You know how sometimes you're listening to something yeah. and you're like, who is this? This is somebody, isn't it? And it's like, it's and then you get driver. into things like Goodnight Oppie, where it's like, Angela Bassett. You know what I mean? Like, I'd know that voice mm-hmm. anywhere. And sometimes it's like, 
what familiar British actor is this person? Like, Liev Schreiber's voice, even after you knew who he was, had such a perfectly unobtrusive voiceover voice that, like, it truly was a shock once I realized it. And you almost have to, like, once you know it, close your eyes and just listen to the voice to, like, picture his (laughs) face. Um, But it's, like, one of the most, like, absolutely unobtrusive voiceover voices in history. It's kind of amazing. Um, what else did, oh, the one line that I wrote down from the end of this movie that I wanted to see how it worked on you, because apparently it really worked on me because I wrote it down. Um, when the woman is talking about how her sister had buried her wedding ring in the little jar by the river, and she's sort of wondering to herself, like, why would she, why did she do that? Why did she tell me? that I'm, that I'm doing this in case. And she's like, what did she mean? What in case what? And Alex is sort of musing as to, you know, maybe in case, you know, and Jonathan is maybe she wanted to sort of make sure that her story was told. And, uh, the woman whose name I'm going to keep forgetting and have to go back Lista, um, says that it wasn't there. It's essentially, she says the ring is not here because of us we are here because of the ring. Like essentially it's funny that it's a ring because it's Elijah Wood Mm -hmm. and the whole journey is the ring, but essentially it's the ring is buried for the people to come find it for them to then have that experience for them to be there on that riverbank and in this, on that land and in this, where this shtetl once was and to, you know, that it's, it's sort of a, a takeoff on a very, you know, again, Lord of the Ringsy kind of a thing of like the journey is the destination kind of a thing. But I don't know. I thought I thought it was maybe I'm just being a real big sucker for like you know literary f- uh, worded uh, phrases. But I I thought that was uh, notable and I wrote it down. No, I mean like that's uh, it, that's why you uh, tell this story, um, and that it ultimately and it ultimately isn't. In that, it, that it's about getting Jonathan and getting Alex and getting grandfather to sort of, you know, be in this physical place. I think this movie really values mm-hmm. that idea of physical place. And that's why also it's a really, it's a heavy thing to watch now in 2023 when Ukraine is sort of going mm-hmm. through the devastation of this war. And like, once again, you know, history repeating itself or whatever you get this thing that is going to echo traumatically through generations, no matter how it ends up. And we don't know how it's going to end up yet, but this is going to be yet another thing that is, you know, felt for generations on generations going forward. The people who, Mm -hmm. you know, will die and the, the architecture that will die and the land that will be scarred and, you know, the stories that, can only be told by the presence of a ring. Yeah. So it's like watching this thing in 2023 really hits, I think. And, um, you know, that's sort of needs to be mentioned as well. I feel like, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm glad we did this. This is a movie that we've, we've had on our, you know, in our database for a while. And I've sort of been a little bit un. I think the only thing I ever really knew about it, I knew it was based on a novel, but the only thing I really knew about it was like 
Elijah Wood on the poster with like all the sunflowers. You know what I mean? <laughs> this was a, this is the first movie we've done in a while that I was initially concerned we would have difficulty getting our hands on, honestly. Yeah. Well, because it's kind of because it's so forgotten. The properly basically. subtitled version is a little bit more difficult to get your hands on <laughs> than you would think. <laughs> yeah. And um, I mean, part of the I mean, it, it it's the one two punch of this is a movie that uh, was a Warner Independent movie that got such mild reviews. And like a lot of the Warner Independent properties that you know yeah ha- have done well like before sunset you know yeah oh we've talked about that have been the age of warner onto. independent like talk about a golden age of a cinema and this is me. like the peak of warner independent too because they do have like a kind of busy 2005 they have good night and good luck which was a best picture nominee among other yeah. uh different awards did that movie win zero oscars good night and good luck probably yes. yeah no, yeah. no, wait, Clooney won for Syriana, of course. Uh, really, yeah. really Clooney won. Clooney won for Good Night and Good Luck in everything but name. Um, right, right. But yes, yeah, I think so. Because screenplay that year was Brokeback Mountain and, and Adapted and... And Crash. Crash, yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I haven't seen Good Night and Good Luck in a long time. Not since that year. I have not. You would think that would be like, that's... Is that a dad movie? Is Good Night and Good Luck a dad movie? I think the thing that keeps it from being a dad movie is that it's so associated to post 9-11 politics. Mm. I, who am am obsessed with, like, the movies of post 9-11 politics, should maybe rewatch that movie very soon. That's maybe a thing you could pitch to somebody. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I all, I kind of sort of did uh, talking about Dogville recently. Um, what a great, by the way, if you haven't, listeners, uh, go find Chris's piece on Dogville, which is uh, really, really, really well done for, um, uh, why am I blanking? Jesus Christ. Why can't I think of the names of things anymore? Daily Beast. Where did I? Oh, I wrote it for the Daily the Beast. Daily is that Beast. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Kevin Fallon. I love you. Um, uh, special thanks to Kevin Fallon, who really helped uh, shape that piece, too. Because, like, listen, I'm someone who gets in the weeds. I was, I like, had whole sections about Thornton Wilder that got cut. Like, I, I, I did not know that until you just mentioned it. But, like, it does not surprise me that you had whole sections about Thornton Wilder. But, like, um, it makes sense, like, given the, the, the aesthetics of that movie. Yeah. Um. Uh, also in 2005, March of the Penguins, which wins the documentary feature. Yes. Oscar. Did you see Mar- Did you ever see March of the Penguins? That year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody I didn't did. see that shit. Oh, everybody saw March of the Penguins, I thought. I, I didn't. Thought- I was like, it's Penguins. I get it. <laughs> I, I mostly okay. I I'm being very very glib here, but mostly I cannot watch things where animals die. Just oh, can't see, do it. I it's not like I seek out things where animals die, but like I don't Animal have that kind of trigger. I'm not watching it because there is the fact that it is a documentary about animals. There is at least a fifty fifty percent chance where there is an animal dying in it and like I don't know what it is about me. I'm not a super softy, but like I can't do it. Can't it's do. like people who have no gag reflex. I'm like that, but with uh, animal. Like I have no, I have no trigger 
for animals dying in movies. Like that does not like affect me whatsoever. Um, Joe just like in his free time mainline Sarah McLaughlin ASPCA commercial. Amores like, Peros like fully down the back of my throat is uh, is <laughs> is how I live my life apparently. Um, they also have uh, the Palestinian film Paradise Now, which I recently watched for 100 Years, 100 Snubs. That was a uh, foreign language film nominee. These are Warner independent movies of this year you're talking yes. about. Yes. Yeah, this yeah. is all of Warner 2005. So uh, Warner independent 2005. So like mm-hmm. they also had that movie The Jacket, which like I saw The Jacket. And, I'm going to uh, I, 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 I've, I've had occasion to with the news that Netflix is shuttering their dvd business i have occasion to if you are on the netflix dvd plan and i know there are some of you out there because i talk to you uh, every once in a while um you are able to go into your account and look at your entire dvd rental history from back to the beginning and what i have done is i have screenshot what joe has done has rented the jacket four times a year well so i but i've screenshotted that first like two years worth of rentals for me just so because if if they take it away i want to have it preserved somewhere um the jacket was absolutely an early dvd rental from netflix for me and i remember (laughs) very little about it it's one of those like movies where reality is not what it seems it sort of feels indebted to something like um what's the tim robbins movie um Oh, fuck. Jacob's Ladder. Jacob's Ladder. It feels very indebted to Jacob's Ladder. Doesn't the jacket have, like, the same twist as some other movie? Why do I remember that movie getting lumped in with something else? And it's like, here's why both of these movies suck. Also, by the way, they had the same twist. I think it was very similar to another movie of around that time. I think you're right, and I can't remember what it was. But, so, mid-aughts, early to mid-aughts indie movies is a time period that I have a lot of fondness for, but maybe only because of the age that I was and the fact that Netflix was get like not to credit Netflix, but like was giving me access to so much more than I ever had access to before. And I was also getting into things like writing about movies. So like all of that is a very sort of like golden hued time in my memory, because if you think about the movies themselves, it's kind of a mishmash of this sort of post Miramax when Miramax sort of changed the like not to like whatever credit Harvey Weinstein with anything but like the way Miramax kind of changed the game for American indie films and then that whole sort of decade that followed there was a lot of opportunity to make a lot of indie movies and a lot of them sort of you look back and you're just like maybe that wasn't much of anything but there were all these movies and like so I'm watching so you mentioned that Everything is Illuminated was nominated for or was recognized by the National Board of Review that year for special recognition. Uh, special recognition, excellence in filmmaking. Montgomery the Burns. Word soup that we have talked about in yes, the past. The C. Montgomery Burns Award for Outstanding Achievement in the Field of Excellence. This was before they started coming up with a t- top 10 list of indie films, which is at least a cleaner way of <laughs> describing that. So the movies that were recognized. So t- this is sort of goes to my point of um, the indie situation in the mid aughts. So breakfast on Pluto, Neil Jordan's breakfast on Pluto, a movie I think we should do maybe around Oppenheimer time because of Killian Murphy. Like you realize that would be very soon because we also have most of July planned. Well, we can do it in the aftermath of, of Oppenheimer then. Um, 
Especially if he's a Best Actor contender. A South African movie called Cape of Good Hope that I have no memory of. Um, the Craig Lucas movie, The Dying Gall, with Patricia Clarkson and... Uh, Bisexuality. Uh, Campbell Scott and I want to say Peter Sarsgaard. Yeah, there's gay shit in yes. there. Which is why I saw it. Everything is Illuminated. Hustle and Flow, which ended up being an Oscar player. Junebug, which ended up being an Oscar player for Amy Adams. Matthew Vaughn's Layer Cake, which is... Essentially, like, what if Guy Ritchie, but not. Um, Lord of War, the Nicolas Cage, the Andrew Nichol movie with Nicolas Cage, Lord of War, that I never saw. Um, Rodrigo Garcia's Nine Lives, which I think is like something of an anthology movie. Um, loosely connected uh, tales of this, like. Title alone, I believe you. Nine Lives, but the cast, as many Rodrigo Garcia movies back then, was like stacked with like holly hunter robin wright uh amanda seyfried sissy spacek kathy baker your fave glenn close uh dakota fanning's in it um like stacked stacked cast i remember almost nothing about the movie um uh that movie the thing about my folks with peter falk and uh paul reiser which i never saw but i remember hearing about and very recent this had oscar buzz movie the upside of anger so like again a mishmash of a couple movies that made an impression. Hustle and Flow did. Junebug did. To some degree, Layer Cake did. Um, and then some movies that made like a small impression on a small group of people, like The Upside of Anger did, and The Dying Gall, and Breakfast on mm-hmm. Pluto, and Everything is Illuminated, I would put in that. And then like some movies that just like don't seem to have ever existed at all. And that, again, this golden-hued time in my in my memory that maybe wasn't quite so uh, golden. The thing that I don't think people realize or remember or talk about with especially early days of Netflix discs is that, you know, Blockbuster and video stores didn't used to have everything. No. Especially Especially if you're trying to watch something, you know, from a smaller distributor, recent indie at the time, you're not necessarily going to find that at a video store. So Netflix discs did for like people you and I, people like you and I, uh, provide the sometimes the opportunity to see those things this is before you know digital rentals and and similar to the way that like amazon has made us nostalgic for the big box bookstores like borders and barnes and noble which at one point were the villains that killed the mom and pop bookstores like Mm -hmm. the streaming era has made us nostalgic for the netflix disc era which made us nostalgic for the blockbuster video store era, which was the big bad wolf that killed the mom and pop video stores, right? Because Blockbuster tried to do their own like disc service too to compete with Netflix, and that's part like, of the time that they went on. Nobody has more nostalgia for Blockbuster video than me. Like that was culture for me was a trip to the blockbuster video it was just close enough that when i became a teenager i could walk to it so it's also the like most notorious job that i applied for that i never got that i still feel like it's an injustice wait what later. you've never you've never talked about this to me i think you i tried have. to get a job at blockbuster and they turned you down i applied for a job at blockbuster video and they hired somebody else 
Um, Fucking lose. You could. You loser. You. They could have had all of this. Cool. They could have had. They were the prestige of the future co-host of this had Oscar buzz on their roster. (laughs) Um, But so, but like the thing about blockbuster is sort of the thing about like what multiplexes became, which is they had a ton of shelf space, and you would get a whole wall of. Men in Black. You know what I mean? You get a whole wall of, um, uh, I'm trying to think of like what would have been like the late Armageddon, right? You know what I mean? Like that and kind of. And now the multiplexes are like if you have 20 walls and 19 of the walls are Our covered Doctor by Strange. a Disney product <laughs> yes. that no one cares about, but everyone apparently sees. Uh, well, I do. Whatever. I'm not going to have the argument about how nobody cares about Marvel movies. Of course, people care about Marvel movies. Um, uh, but anyway, I know nobody that has seen. Well, that's not true. Except, of course, it's not true. I have not of had anyone not bring up in conversation the newest Guardians of the Galaxy. Are you willing to admit that you have maybe curated your life to make that the case? No, okay. because, okay. like, everyone at my day job knows what Marvel is. They consume Marvel. They consume Disney. Okay. All right. Have any of them talked about Guardians of the Galaxy? No. Okay. Have any of them talked about the Little Mermaid? I'm not going to deny no. that, like, we are in an ebb of uh, of of the MCU. I will say, I'm going to end up seeing the Little Mermaid, and that's because my sister wants to see it. So, like, culturally, there, like, that movie does have some sort of an impact. Um, but anyway, watch that movie uh, 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 on on an edible, maybe, maybe. So, but yeah, but your point being that Netflix DVD mailers happened at a time when there like there was an opportunity for it because blockbuster video became so blockbuster oriented that there was like increasingly vanishing space maybe that's a double negative or an oxymoron whatever uh less and less shelf space for non-new releases or you know what i mean like that kind of a thing so then all of a sudden netflix uh, discs come along and it really did like open open a door for uh a lot of indies of the of the aughts to come flooding into my door and somehow everything is illuminated was not one of them but i'm glad uh i'm glad i saw it now i feel like i'm in a i yeah. i would not have appreciated maybe it as much then as i do now so happy for that good movie good movie good movie uh, good, good movie asterisks. Sure, for me. Sure, yeah. But uh, yeah, definitely uh, valuable for conversation uh, in all the ways that we spend the four dollars to watch it and get the correct subtitles. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Tubi, Tubi. I've been sticking up for Tubi. I feel a little betrayed. I love watching something on Tubi and then at the most inopportune moment getting an ad for some type of senior medication. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh. There, the, everything in the world is spying on us right now. Yeah. Everything in the world is like, you have a conversation about cheddar cheese. Mm-hmm. Guess what? You are going to open your phone and immediately see an ad for cheddar cheese. You are going to, um, your YouTube ads are going to change. However, what are your ads not going to change for? 
Tubi. <laughs> they are still going to be selling you a retirement community oh. and insurance. Can I they tell are you? They're never going to sell you the thing you had a conversation about 15 minutes ago. This is why Tubi is good. <laughs> Tubi is not spying on us. I have recently had occasion where um, I have spent more time with my parents watching television with my parents, watching my parents' television. So they have mm. cable TV. My parents... Your phone now thinks that it's you are 25 years older than you My are. parents have MSNBC on all day. Um, and then we'll do the, like, uh, evening uh, Wheel of Fortune Jeopardy double bill. And then... Hell yeah. Rarely we'll go back to MSNBC in the evenings unless there's, like... Unless Trump's been charged with something. Or... We'll watch their like Britcoms, you know what I mean? We'll watch their PBS, you know, shows about, you know, doctors in the British countryside solving mysteries or whatever. Um, but the first part of the day, up through like Jeopardy, it really is, and this is a trite observation, but also like this is terrestrial TV, so like it is not subject, like your cable box is one of the few things that is not listening to you and responding to you with tailored ads, right? You're still beholden to whatever companies have bought airtime on ABC or, or uh, MSNBC. The concentration with which everything is a prescription drug ad nowadays is and then paper towels. It's it's it's. <laughs> I would kill for a paper towels commercial. Daytime TV. They call them soap operas for a reason. It used to be all ads for home cleaning products and whatever. It is wall to wall pharmaceuticals all day every day. It's and I. The reason that I had occasion to be spending more time with my parents watching uh, their television was I was going through a health thing that required me to essentially like be on the lower floor, lower floor of their flat. So I was already I was sort of say nonstop pharmaceutical ads is not good. Not a good space for this guy. So <laughs> it was and like it's and they just sort of like and because they're required to like again these are not novel observations like the 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 side effects thing and the like everything is and now like the older you get the other thing that you don't realize is the older you get the more that those ads become for things that like you are currently taking. <laughs> so then it's just like I don't want to <laughs> know. Have you ever had a pain in your neck? I don't want to know the like Do risks. You wake up, not feeling of like rested. unexpected death that come with like my regular run of the mill like you know pill I take for whatever so like uh, again trite whatever but all I'm saying is like you would be I would I would kill for a Wayfair ad for a sectional couch that I have already bought you know what I mean like at the very least tailored ads don't freak me out the way that like television ads now do like tailored ads try to sell you things that you've already bought on Amazon. That's annoying and dumb, but like, whatever I would take that any day over like television telling me, Oh, 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 Ozempic, which by the wow. way, O'Reilly should also sue them for copyright mm. uh, infringement. Anyway, 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 um, anyway, anyway, this is all, <laughs> this has all been our ad for Tubi. Um, <laughs> That's how we got to talking about this. We have had a journey. What if we got a sponsorship with Tubi? That'd be great. What did we say? Morningstar, Veggie Burgers, and Tubi TV bring you this at Oscar Buzz. (laughs) Get at us, sponsors. What could be the Morningstar, Tubi TV, and BetterHelp? Somebody. (laughs) Because we're a podcast. Other podcasts get fucking 
Casper mattresses and Bomba socks, and I'm gonna have a freezer full of fucking Morningstar veggie burgers that I will never eat. Like that's gonna be that will be the fate. No, 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 no. no. Uh, okay, this is this is where we talk about food. This episode, the Morningstar buffalo chicken ones are good. I believe you. No, trust me, you should have one. They're good. They stay crispy. They yeah, they're yummy. I believe you. All right. Um, you don't believe me. Um, anyway, uh, don't. Uh, we are sponsored by Tubi uh-huh. uh, unofficially, but don't watch everything is illuminated on it. You will not have a great. You will not know what's going on. You won't get the full movie. Just rent it. Um, but do check out this movie, even if you have quibbles. Yeah, uh, such as I do. Yes. All right. Um, Joe, we're coming up on 250 episodes. Mother of mercy. I didn't put this in the outline, but it did occur to me we should hype up that we are hitting another fucking milestone. Quarter of the way to to 1,000. Wow. Only 750 short episodes to go before we hit 1,000, Chris. What would we do (laughs) if we hit 1,000 episodes? We would... We would do cats again. <laughs> okay. All right. That is our promise to you, dear listener. If we hit a thousand <laughs> episodes, we're doing cats again. Ed, please. At that point, it's not that we would run out of movies, but we, at that point, we would have to, you know, have an update on some of these movies. Well, we'll be recording from the bottom of the, the ocean but after the seas have uh, mm-hmm. risen yeah, past our yeah, borders. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, depresso, uh, why- depresso, depresso. Yeah. Why don't you explain to our listeners what the IMDb game is? Why don't I? All right. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with the name of an actor or actress and try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we mentioned that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue, and if that is not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, how are we doing this today? Are you giving or guessing first? I'll give first. All right. So, uh, Liev Schreiber, our, our, our friend Liev Schreiber, on his directing tab, was just Everything is Illuminated, and then, as you mentioned, episodes of Ray Donovan. Uh, one of the stars of Ray Donovan, who kept getting Emmy nominations to a point where I was just like, enough already. Oh, was yeah. uh, Mr. John Voigt, who we have done before, but not Blech. since 2018. Since our Hyde Park on Hudson episode was the last time we did John Voigt. Why we did John Voigt for... Oh, because he also played FDR. There we go. Um, um, so this, there are, there's no television. There's no voice performances. So this is for feature films for John Voigt. Okay. Midnight Cowboy. Correct. Ali. Incorrect, even though he was mm. Oscar nominated. I wonder if Pearl Harbor is there. Anaconda. Yes, Anaconda. Yeah, bitch. <laughs> Very well done. Yes. Um uh I'll I'll just say Pearl Harbor. Not Pearl Harbor. All right. Okay. So your two remaining years are 1972 and 1985. Okay. Um, the rare known for were nothing. train. There's nothing more recent than 97 on this known for, which is kind of interesting. That's interesting. What did you say? Sorry, I missed it. Runaway Train. Runaway Train, correct, is your 1985. I need to watch that movie, because every time I see those Oscar nominations, I'm like, but it's, it's a movie called Runaway Train. It's him and Eric Roberts, right? 
Yes. Yeah. That's wild. Uh, I, it just sounds like some bad action movie, and I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure it I was. I'm sure it's good. Yeah. Um, but, Eric Roberts, Oscar nominee for Runaway Train. God that does. That just sounds like a Razzie nominee. One of the three um, credited screenwriters on Runaway Train, Akira Kurosawa. I wonder if that's because it's based on based on something Akira a Kurosawa film. Yes, based on a. It's based on a screenplay by Akira Kurosawa. So I imagine it's sort of like living uh, is, is uh, sure. Sure. Sure, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. sure, Wild uh, living. Also a bad action movie. Double um, feature. Chris, please double feature living and runaway train next time. Uh, <laughs> Girl, Bill Nye is here and I am living. <laughs> living. Um, uh, okay. Is 72 the champ? No, it is not the champ. champ. Get up. Champ, get up. No. Uh, with a uh, right-wing lunatic uh, Rick Schroeder? Yeah, no. Right-wing lunatic John Voight. Well, um, also, yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Uh, okay, 72. It's a very famous movie for him. It's Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just not getting there. Um, he's maybe the, probably the second lead, I would imagine. Because I think he has another Oscar nomination. Well, maybe he, this was his first Oscar nomination? He wa- he's, he's won an Oscar. But it's oh, not for yeah. this movie. Oh, wait. What did he win for? He won for Coming Home in 78. That's right. Him um, and Jane. Great movie. Never um, saw it. Is that Hal Ashby? Hal Ashby, baby. Yeah. Uh, that movie is not as great of a movie in someone else's hands. But Oh, it looks like Ashby's he is first build in this. The person I thought was first build is second build. But they're both above oh, the title. God. Is it? He's in a war. No, is is it Deliverance? It is Deliverance. Yeah, which I've never seen. Uh, I've seen, I think I get it. I I've think seen I get parts it. of it on television. I've never seen it front to. I mean, it's become so notorious for the 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 rape scene and also the banjo playing scene. Like it's I, it, right. I'm, I imagine because it was pretty well reviewed when it was like that. Yeah, was a, like, do I need to see Deliverance or can we move on? I'll probably watch it if I catch it at the beginning on television. I have become a TCM bitch and an uh, FX movies uh, bitch. Where now that I have okay, cable again. if you have if you have any DVR capacity, you need to constantly be checking the TCM. I do. Uh, That's how I watched because, Clute like, the, the shit other that day. they play at two a.m. is always the good stuff. They were showing. I think it was, was it last summer or maybe two summers ago. They were doing Almodovar movies yeah. that, like, some of them at the time were like super hard. To I've got a bunch on. of stuff that I just like set to record and now exist on my DVR. But also, it's just fun to like catch something on the fly on television mm-hmm. and let the let the cable grid make your decision for you. Which is how I watched North by Northwest the other day, which was good uh, I had never seen that one before, and it's so good. Cary Grant, hottie, yeah. All right, so for you, um, I've been too nice to you lately. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to uh, nod talk- and agree, even though I don't think that's correct. But okay, <laughs> uh, we t- we mentioned that this motion picture came out the year that Leo Schreiber won his Tony for Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross. The role that he played netted a Oscar nomination for Al Pacino. I'm not giving you Al Pacino. I am giving the original U.S. performer of that role to you who originated the role on Broadway and I believe Steppenwolf, Mr. Joe Montaigne. Ah, that makes sense. No television, no voice performances. All right. Joe Montaigne. 
Well, speaking of Al Pacino, Godfather 3. Correct. All right. Uh, no television. So no, no television. Uh, uh, Criminal Minds. Okay. Um, Is he on Criminal Minds? Why did I think it was like NCIS? No, no it was really. he... Uh, Mandy Patinkin, as is his want, uh, started Criminal Minds and then left after like two years. So then uh, Joe Montana stepped in. And so no voice, so no Fat Tony on the on the, the Sopranos, on The Simpsons. Um, no. All right. Joey Jojo Montaigne. Um God. He's such a, like, is, okay, we were talking about this yesterday on our group chat, and I love this movie, and I know it's an ensemble, so probably not, but is it Forget Paris? It's not Forget Paris. Uh, Katie, you better have watched He's Forget one Paris. of the ensemble in Forget Paris. A, a, a canonical love Forget Paris. Chris and Joe love it movie. Yeah, I love Forget um, Paris. Look how much a lime weighs. Um, uh, no, it's not Forget Paris, unfortunately. Okay. Um, you're, you're getting your years, though. Why? What else did I get wrong? Oh, wait, I thought you guessed something wrong. No, I guess not. No, it was just Godfather 3 in that one. Um... Joe Montaigne. God, this is hard. He's very rarely a lead, is the thing. Usually a bureaucrat. Yeah, or like, is he in, I think he's in Body of Evidence. I'm going to guess Body of Evidence. He is in Body of Evidence, but that is an incorrect guess. I love that now because of, uh, you must remember this, everybody's watching the same trashy 90s sex thrillers. Like I still amazing. have to catch up to Body of Evidence, and I really want to. Because when I worked at my former employer, I went through, because one of the things that did well for us traffic-wise was like smut. So I decided my version of doing that was just like every week writing about a different 90s sex thriller. And so mm-hmm. one of them was Indecent Proposal. One of them was Body of Evidence. One of the, like, So it's like all the stuff that Karina's doing now on, on You Must Remember This. I'm like, yeah, I went through, the, this was my 2018. Was like you don't have to catch up watching to Watching on all this stuff. It's great. Um, all right, so... Now I've gotten two wrong, so now you got to give me years. Yes, your years are 1993, 1994, and 1998. I also sh- uh, known for that doesn't go past the 90s. I should have guessed 93 earlier. It's Searching for Bobby Fisher. I know. You love that movie. He's, I, I like, do, and he's very that. good in that movie. Yeah. Searching for Bobby Fisher is correct. All right, 94 and 98. Yes. Is he the lead in either? Um, I would guarantee you he is first billed in the 94 movie. Let me confirm that. I partly picked this. No, he is not first billed. <laughs> He's second billed. But, is he uh, second billed partly... to like a child? No. But you're not far off. An animal? No. Okay. There is. Uh, there are both in this movie. Okay. 94. <laughs> I partly picked this because it's awesome. This is on someone's known for Is it a comedy? Sure. Yes. <laughs> oh no. Um is it like an action movie that's so dumb that it's comedic? No, it's it's intentionally a comedy, but it's bad. Stupid. It's very bad. It's very dumb. <laughs> is it like a dumb in a way that people probably I- I'm surprised the internet hasn't really sunk its hooks in this movie but people will eventually love this movie is it like based on a pre-existing property huh is it based on a pre-existing property of some sort i think yes actually but not nobody knows it as that hold on okay i think this might be a remake oh god no 
No, I don't think it is any of that. Okay. Um, uh, you can currently watch this movie on Tubi, and everyone should. Well, hopefully the subtitles are correct <laughs> on that one. Um, all right. Comedy, but it's bad. Um, original idea. There is a child and an animal in Very it. Very famous screenwriter. Oh. Oscar winner? No. Very famous screenwriter. Screenwriter who also directed but did not direct this movie. Okay. Um, the cast it, of this movie is somewhat wild. Give me some others. Uh, Joe Pantoliano. <laughs> I'm sure that they are, like, working together. Uh-huh. Cynthia Nixon and Lara Flint Boyle. What in the world? It is it is very funny that these people are all in this movie. I don't know this movie at all with that cast. Um this it I mean, you could say that this movie was targeted towards children. This is definitely a post home alone type. Is it a problem child movie? No, but uh, keep thinking in that vein. Dennis the Menace? No. Keep thinking in that vein. So like a, a rascally kid. A rascally, very young kid? A baby. Yes. Is it like Baby's Day Out or something like that? It's Baby's Day Out. I could have... That <laughs> fucking wild... Baby's Day Out. I love that Baby's Day Out is not Joe Jesus Christ. (laughs) Baby's Day Out. Cynthia Nixon in Baby's Day Out. Sure, sure. Everybody, before you're allowed to watch season two of And Just Like That, in some bad movies. Before you're allowed to watch season two of And Just Like That, you all have to go out and watch Baby's Day Out before that. All right, 19. In the Sex and the City universe. Okay, the 98 movie. I've never seen, so I couldn't tell you if you would know this as a Joe Montagna movie, but it is an ensemble movie from from a very famous, very canceled director who, at the time, did a lot of uh, ensemble movies. Brett Ratner. No. Brian Singer. No. James Toback. No. Woody Allen. Yes. Can't believe I got to four before I got to Woody <laughs> Allen in terms of famously canceled directors. So his 98 movie was Celebrity? Yes. It's, celebrity is the answer. I don't remember Joe Montaigne in Celebrity, but I definitely saw Celebrity. But that was back when I'm almost certain I only watched Celebrity because I thought there was a chance that Leonardo DiCaprio might be naked in it. Before I realized yeah, that like, chose Woody Allen doesn't do that. Um, Woody Allen is not the person to go to if you want your teen heartthrob boy to uh, to take his clothes off because you're 17 years old and horny. Um, uh, alas. Alas. Okay. That was so fucking hard, Chris. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I gave you Anaconda and Deliverance, and you gave me Baby's Day Out and the tw- 20th lead from Celebrity. It's known for includes a movie you love. Sure. A movie that I love. Actually, I kind of also stick up for The Godfather Part 3, so... Um, to rewatch it, because I... I done the first two earlier in the year and uh it is timing was not it's in a different universe than the other two ones in terms of level of uh, quality so but it's still good coppola at that time because sure. he's making movies like tucker and bram stoker's dracula those movies are bananas yeah. like 
You should, All right, you my should friend. watch Tucker. You didn't think we were going to get much out of this episode. You thought this episode was going to be... This was a good episode. This is a good discussion. This is a good episode. Good episode. All right. Uh, but that is it. If you want more of this Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Please also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz and on Instagram at thishadoscarbuzz. Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd, both at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. And I am on Twitter and Letterbox at Crispy File. That's F E I L. Did I say Letterbox too? Twitter and Letterbox, whatever. Um, we'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Kevin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So please be our seeing eye bitches uh, with a nice review. Uh, that's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Huzzah! In a few weeks, 250.